Chapter Two of Annie Besant by Annie Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tim Freeberg Renwick. Early Childhood. And now began my mother's time of struggle and of anxiety. Hitherto, since her marriage, she had known no money troubles, for her husband was earning a good income. He was apparently vigorous and well. No thought of anxiety clouded their future. When he died, he believed that he left his wife and children safe, at least from pecuniary distress. It was not so. I know nothing of the details, but the outcome of all was that nothing was left for the widow and children save a trifle of ready money. The resolve to which my mother came was characteristic. Two of her husband's relatives, Western and Sir William Wood, offered to educate her son at a good city school and to start him in commercial life using their great city influence to push him forward. But the young lad's father and mother had talked of a different future for their eldest boy. He was to go to a public school and then to the university, and was to enter one of the learned professions. To take orders, the mother wished, to go to the bar, the father hoped. On his deathbed there was nothing more earnestly urged by my father than that Harry should receive the best possible education. And the widow was resolute to fulfill that last wish, in her eyes, a city school was not the best possible education, and the Irish pride rebelled against the idea of her son not being a university man. Many were the lectures poured out on the young widow's head about her foolish pride, especially by the female members of the Wood family, and her persistence in her own way caused a considerable alienation between herself and them. But Western and William, though half disapproving, remained her friends, and lent many a helping hand to her in her first difficult struggles. After much cogitation, she resolved that the boy should be educated at Harrow, where the fees are comparatively low to lads living in the town, and that he should go thence to Cambridge or to Oxford, as his tastes should direct. A bold scheme for a penniless widow, but carried out to the letter, for never dwelt in a delicate body a more resolute mind and will than that of my dear mother. In a few months' time, during which we lived, poorly enough, in Richmond Terrace, Clapham, close to her father and mother, to Harrow, then she betook herself into lodgings over a grocer's shop, and set herself to look for a house. This grocer was a very pompous man, fond of long words, and patronized the young widow exceedingly. And one day my mother related with much amusement how he had told her that she was sure to get on if she worked hard. Look at me, he said, swelling visibly with importance. I was once a poor boy, without a penny of my own, and now I am a comfortable man, and have my submarine villa to go to every evening. That submarine villa was an object of amusement when we passed it on our walks for many a long day. There is Mr. Blank's submarine villa, someone would say, laughing. And I, too, used to laugh merrily, because my elders did, but my understanding of the difference between suburban and submarine was on a par with that of the honest grocer. My mother had fortunately found a boy, whose parents were glad to place him in her charge, of about the age of her own son, to educate with him, and by this means she was able to pay for a tutor to prepare the two boys for school. The tutor had a cork leg, which was a source of serious trouble to me, for it stuck out straight behind when we knelt down to family prayers conduct which struck me as irreverent and unbecoming, but which I always felt a desire to imitate. After about a year, my mother found a house which she thought would suit her scheme, 
namely to obtain permission from Dr. Vaughan, the then headmaster of Harrow, to take some boys into her house and so gain means of education for her own son. Dr. Vaughan, who must have been won by the gentle, strong little woman, from that time forth became her earnest friend and helper, and to the counsel and active assistance both of himself and of his wife was due much of the success that crowned her toil. He made only one condition in granting the permission she asked, and that was that she should also have in her house one of the masters of the school, so that the boys should not suffer from the want of a house-tutor. This condition, of course, she readily accepted, and the arrangement lasted for ten years, until after her son had left school for Cambridge. The house she took is now, I am sorry to say, pulled down and replaced by a hideous red-brick structure. It was very old and rambling, rose-covered in front, ivy-covered behind. It stood on the top of Harrow Hill between the church and the school, and had once been the vicarage of the parish. But the vicar had left it because it was so far removed from the part of the village where all his work lay. The drawing-room opened by an old-fashioned half-window, half-door, which proved a constant source of grief to me, for whenever I had on a new frock I always tore it on the bolt as I flew through, into a large garden which sloped down one side of the hill, and was filled with the most delightful old trees, fir and laurel, may, mulberry, hazel, apple, pear, and damson, not to mention currant and gooseberry bushes innumerable, and large strawberry beds spreading down the sunny slopes. There was not a tree there that I did not climb, and one, a wide-spreading Portugal laurel, was my private country house. I had there my bedroom and my sitting-rooms, my study, and my larder. The larder was supplied by the fruit-trees, from which I was free to pick as I would, and in the study I would sit for hours with some favorite book. Milton's Paradise Lost, the chief favorite of all. The birds must often have felt startled when from a small swinging form perched on a branch came out in childish tones the Thrones, dominations, princedoms, virtues, and powers of Milton's stately and sonorous verse. I liked to personify Satan and to declaim the grand speeches of the hero rebel, and many a happy hour did I pass in Milton's heaven and hell with for companions Satan and the sun, Gabriel and Abdiel. Then there was a terrace running by the side of the churchyard, always dry in the wettest weather, and bordered by an old wooden fence over which clambered roses of every shade. Never was such a garden for roses as that of the old vicarage. At the end of the terrace was a little summer-house, and in this a trap-door in the fence, which swung open and displayed one of the fairest views in England. Sheer from your feet downwards went the hill, and then far below stretched the wooded country till your eye reached the towers of Windsor Castle, far away on the horizon. It was the view at which Byron was never tired of gazing, as he lay on the flat tombstone close by, Byron's tomb, as it is still called, of which he wrote, Again I behold where for hours I have pondered, as reclining at eve on yon tombstone I lay, or round the steep brow of the churchyard I wandered, to catch the last gleam of the sun's setting ray. Reader mine, if ever you go to Harrow, ask permission to enter the old garden, and try the effect of that sudden burst of beauty as you swing back the small trap-door at the terrace end. Into this house we moved on my eighth birthday. For eleven years it was home to me, left always with regret, returned to always with joy. 
Almost immediately afterwards I left my mother for the first time. For one day, visiting a family who lived close by, I found a stranger sitting in the drawing-room, a lame lady with a strong face, which softened marvelously as she smiled at the child who came dancing in. She called me to her presently and took me on her lap and talked to me, and on the following day our friend came to see my mother, to ask if she would let me go away and be educated with this lady's niece, coming home for the holidays regularly, but leaving my education in her hands. At first my mother would not hear of it, for she and I scarcely ever left each other. My love of her was an idolatry, hers for me a devotion. A foolish little story about which I was unmercifully teased for years marked that absolute idolatry of her, which has not yet faded from my heart. In tenderest rallying one day of the child who trotted after her everywhere, content to sit or stand or wait, if only she might touch hand or dress of Mama, she said, Little one, the name by which she always called me, if you cling to Mama in this way, I must really get a string and tie you to my apron, and how will you like that? Oh, Mama, darling, came the fervent answer, do let it be in a knot. And indeed the tie of love between us was so tightly knotted that nothing ever loosened it till the sword of death cut that which pain and trouble never availed to slacken in the slightest degree. But it was urged upon her that the advantages of education offered were such as no money could purchase for me, that it would be a disadvantage for me to grow up in a house full of boys. And in truth I was as good a cricketer and climber as the best of them, that my mother would soon be obliged to send me to school, unless she accepted an offer which gave me every advantage of school without its disadvantages. At last she yielded, and it was decided that Miss Marriott, on returning home, should take me with her. Miss Marriott, the favorite sister of Captain Marriott, the famous novelist, was a maiden lady of large means. She had nursed her brother through the illness that ended in his death, and had been living with her mother at Wimbledon Park. On her mother's death she looked round for work which would make her useful in the world, and finding that one of her brothers had a large family of girls, she offered to take charge of one of them, and to educate her thoroughly. Chancing to come to Harrow, my good fortune threw me in her way, and she took a fancy to me, and thought she would like to teach two little girls rather than one. Hence her offer to my mother. Miss Marriott had a perfect genius for teaching, and took in it the greatest delight. From time to time she added another child to our party, sometimes a boy, sometimes a girl. At first, with Amy Marriott and myself, there was a little boy, Walter Powys, son of a clergyman with a large family, and him she trained for some years, and then sent him on to school admirably prepared. She chose her children, as she loved to call us, in very definite fashion. Each must be gently born and gently trained, but in such position that the education freely given should be a relief and aid to a slender parental purse. It was her delight to seek out and aid those on whom poverty presses most heavily, when the need for education for the children weighs on the proud and the poor. Auntie, as we all called her, for she thought Miss Marriott seemed too cold and stiff. She taught us everything herself except music, and for this she had a master, practicing us in composition, in recitation, in reading aloud English and French, and later German, 
devoting herself to training us in the soundest, most thorough fashion. No words of mine can tell how much I owe her, not only of knowledge, but of that love of knowledge which has remained with me ever since as a constant spur to study. Her method of teaching may be of interest to some who desire to train children with the least pain and the most enjoyment to the little ones themselves. First, we never used a spelling book, that torment of the small child, nor an English grammar, but we wrote letters, telling of the things we had seen in our walks, or told again some story we had read. These childish compositions she would read over with us, correcting all faults of spelling, of grammar, of style, of cadence. A clumsy sentence would be read aloud, that we might hear how unmusical it sounded, an error in observation or expression pointed out. Then, as the letters recorded what we had seen the day before, the faculty of observation was drawn out and trained. "'Oh, dear, I have nothing to say,' would come from a small child hanging over a slate. "'Did you not go out for a walk yesterday?' Auntie would question. "'Yes,' would be sighed out, "'but there's nothing to say about it.' "'Nothing to say? And you walked in the lanes for an hour and saw nothing, little no eyes? You must use your eyes better today.' Then there was a very favorite lesson, which proved an excellent way of teaching spelling. We used to write out lists of all the words we could think of which sounded the same but were differently spelt. Thus, key, key, night, night, and so on, and great was the glory of the child who found the largest number. Our French lessons, as the German later, included reading from the very first. On the day on which we began German, we began reading Schiller's Wilhelm Tell, and the verbs given to us to copy out were those that had occurred in the reading. We learned much by heart, but always things that in themselves were worthy to be learned. We were never given the dry questions and answers which lazy teachers so much affect. We were taught history by one reading aloud while the others worked, the boys as well as the girls learning the use of the needle. "'It's like a girl to sew,' said a little fellow indignantly one day. It is like a baby to have to run after a girl if you want a button sewn on, quoth Auntie. Geography was learned by painting skeleton maps, an exercise much delighted in by small fingers, and by putting together puzzle maps, in which countries in the map of a continent, or counties in the map of a country, were always cut out in their proper shapes. I liked big empires in those days. There was a solid satisfaction in putting down Russia, and seeing what a large part of the map was filled up thereby. The only grammar that we ever learned as grammar was the Latin, and that was not until composition had made us familiar with the use of the rules therein given. Auntie had a great horror of children learning by rote things they did not understand, and then fancying they knew them. "'What do you mean by that expression, Annie?' she would ask me. After feeble attempts to explain, I would answer, Indeed, Auntie, I know in my own head, but I can't explain. Then, indeed, Annie, you do not know in your own head, or you could explain, so that I might know it in my own head. And so a healthy habit was fostered of clearness of thought and of expression. The Latin grammar was used because it was more perfect than the modern grammars and served as a solid foundation for modern languages. Miss Marriott took a beautiful place, Fern Hill, near Charmouth, in Dorsetshire, on the borders of Devon, and there she lived for some five years, a center of beneficence in the district. 
She started a Sunday school and a Bible class after a while for the lads too old for the school, who clamored for admission to her class in it. She visited the poor, taking help wherever she went, and sending food from her own table to the sick. It was characteristic of her that she would never give scraps to the poor, but would have a basin brought in at dinner, and would cut the best slice to tempt the invalid appetite. Money she rarely, if ever, gave, but she would find a day's work, or busy herself to seek permanent employment for anyone seeking aid. Stern in rectitude herself, and iron to the fawning or the dishonest, her influence, whether she was feared or loved, was always for the good. Of the strictest sect of the evangelicals, she was an evangelical. On the Sunday no books were allowed save the Bible or the Sunday at home, but she would try to make the day bright by various little devices, by a walk with her in the garden, by the singing of hymns, always attractive to children, by telling us wonderful missionary stories of Moffat and Livingstone, whose adventures with savages and wild beasts were as exciting as any tale of Maine reads. We used to learn passages from the Bible and hymns for repetition. A favorite amusement was a Bible puzzle, such as a description of some Bible scene which was to be recognized by the description. Then we taught in the Sunday school, for Auntie would tell us that it was useless for us to learn if we did not try to help those who had no one to teach them. The Sunday school lessons had to be carefully prepared on the Saturday, for we were always taught that work given to the poor should be work that cost something to the giver. This principle, regarded by her as an illustration of the text, Shall I give unto the Lord my God that which has cost me nothing? ran through all her precept and her practice. When in some public distress we children went to her crying and asking whether we could not help the little children who were starving, her prompt reply was, What will you give up for them? Then she said that if we liked to give up the use of sugar, we might thus each save sixpence a week to give away. I doubt if a healthier lesson can be given to children than that of personal self-denial for the good of others. Daily when our lessons were over, we had plenty of fun. Long walks and rides, rides on a lovely pony, who found small children most amusing, and on which the coachman taught us to stick firmly, whatever his eccentricities of the moment. Delightful all-day picnics in the lovely country round Charmouth. Auntie our merriest playfellow. Never was a healthier home, physically and mentally, made for young things than in that quiet village. And then the delight of the holidays, the pride of my mother at the good report of her darling's progress, and the renewal of acquaintance with every nook and corner in the dear old house and garden. The dreamy tendency in the child, that on its worldly side is fancy, imagination, on its religious side is the germ of mysticism, and I believe it to be far more common than many people think. But the remorseless materialism of the day, not the philosophic materialism of the few, but the religious materialism of the many, crushes out all the delicate buddings forth of the childish thought, and bandages the eyes that might otherwise see. At first the child does not distinguish between what it sees and what it fancies. The one is as real, as objective to it as the other, and it will talk to and play with its dream comrades as merrily as with children like itself. As a child, I myself very much preferred the former, and never knew what it was to be lonely. But clumsy grown-ups come along and tramp right through the dream garden, and crush the dream flowers, and push the dream children aside, and then say in their loud, harsh voices, not soft and singable like the dream voices, 
"'You must not tell such naughty stories, Miss Annie. "'You give me the shivers, and your mamma will be very vexed with you.' "'But this tendency in me was too strong to be stifled, "'and it found its food in the fairy tales I love, "'and in the religious allegories that I found yet more entrancing. "'How or when I learned to read I do not know, "'for I cannot remember the time when a book was not a delight. "'At five years of age I must have read easily.' for I remember being often unswathed from a delightful curtain in which I used to roll myself with a book and told to go and play, while I was still a five-years-old dot. And I had a habit of losing myself so completely in the book that my name might be called in the room where I was and I never hear it, so that I used to be blamed for willfully hiding myself, when I had simply been away in fairyland, or lying trembling beneath some friendly cabbage-leaf as a giant went by. I was between seven and eight years of age when I first came across some children's allegories of a religious kind. And a very little later came Pilgrim's Progress and Milton's Paradise Lost. Thenceforth my busy fancies carried me ever into the fascinating world where boy soldiers kept some outpost for their absent prince, bearing a shield with his sign of a red cross on it, where devils shaped as dragons came swooping down on the pilgrim, but were driven away defeated after hard struggle, where angels came and talked with little children and gave them some talisman which warned them of coming danger, and lost its light if they were leaving the right path. What a dull, tiresome world it was that I had to live in, I used to think to myself, when I was told to be a good child and not to lose my temper, and to be tidy and not to mess my pinafore at dinner. How much easier to be a Christian if one could have a red cross shield and a white banner and have a real devil to fight with, and a beautiful divine prince to smile at you when the battle was over. How much more exciting to struggle with a winged and clawed dragon that you knew meant mischief than to look after your temper that you never remembered you ought to keep until you had lost it. If I had been Eve in the garden, that old serpent would never have got the better of me. But how was a little girl to know that she might not pick out the rosiest, prettiest apple from a tree that had no serpent to show it was a forbidden one? And as I grew older, the dreams and fancies grew less fantastic, but more tinged with real enthusiasm. I read tales of the early Christian martyrs, and passionately regretted that I was born so late, when no suffering for religion was practicable. I would spend many an hour in daydreams, in which I stood before Roman judges, before Dominican inquisitors, was flung to lions, tortured on the rack, burned at the stake. One day I saw myself preaching some great new faith to a vast crowd of people, and they listened and were converted, and I became a great religious leader. But always with a shock I was brought back to earth, where there were no heroic deeds to do, no lions to face, no judges to defy, but only some dull duty to be performed. And I used to fret that I was born so late when all the grand things had been done, and when there was no chance of preaching and suffering for a new religion. From the age of eight my education accented the religious side of my character, under Miss Marriott's teaching, my religious feeling received a strongly evangelical bent, but it was a subject of some distress to me that I could never look back to an hour of conversion. When others gave their experiences and spoke of the sudden change they had felt, I used to be sadly conscious that no such change had occurred in me. I felt that my dreaming longings were very poor things compared with the vigorous sense of sin spoken of by the preachers, and used dolefully to wonder if I were saved. Then I had an uneasy sense that I was often praised for my piety when emulation and vanity were more to the front than religion. As when I learned by heart the epistle of James, 
far more to distinguish myself from my good memory than from any love of the text itself. The sonorous cadences of many parts of the Old and New Testaments pleased my ear. I took a dreamy pleasure in repeating them aloud, just as I would recite for my own amusement hundreds of lines of Milton's Paradise Lost, as I sat swinging on some branch of a tree, lying back often on some swaying bough and gazing into the unfathomable blue of the sky, till I lost myself in an ecstasy of sound and color, half chanting the melodious sentences and peopling all the blue with misty forms. This facility of learning by heart, and the habit of dreamy recitation, made me very familiar with the Bible and very apt with its phrases. This stood me in good stead at the prayer meetings dear to the evangelical, in which we all took part. In turn, we were called on to pray aloud, a terrible ordeal to me, for I was painfully shy when attention was called to me. I used to suffer agonies while I waited for the dreaded words, Now, Annie dear, will you speak to our Lord? But when my trembling lips had forced themselves into speech, all the nervousness used to vanish, and I was swept away by an enthusiasm that readily clothed itself in balanced sentences, and, alack, at the end, I too often hoped that God and Auntie had noticed that I had prayed very nicely, a vanity certainly not intended to be fostered by the pious exercise. On the whole, the somewhat Calvinistic teaching tended, I think, to make me a little morbid, especially as I always fretted silently after my mother. I remember she was surprised in one of my homecomings when Miss Marriott noted cheerfulness as a want in my character, for at home I was ever the blithest of children, despite my love of solitude. But away there was always an aching for home, and the stern religion cast somewhat of a shadow over me. Though, strangely enough, hell never came into my dreamings except in the interesting shape it took in Paradise Lost. After reading that, the devil was to me no horned and hoofed horror, but the beautiful and shadowed archangel, and I always hoped that Jesus, my ideal prince, would save him in the end. The things that really frightened me were vague, misty presences that I felt were near but could not see. They were so real that I knew just where they were in the room, and the peculiar terror they excited lay largely in the feeling that I was just going to see them. If by chance I came across a ghost story, it haunted me for months, for I saw whatever unpleasant spectre was described. There was one horrid old woman in a tale by Sir Walter Scott who glided up to the foot of your bed and sprang on it in some eerie fashion and glared at you, and who made my going to bed a terror to me for many weeks. I can still recall the feeling so vividly that it almost frightens me now. End of chapter 2